It is our prayer that you would have your way in us. We live in a world where often we do not know what the next day will hold or we're uncertain about the times in which we live, the dangers and the frustrations of the hour. And yet you are one who is steadfast. You are one that we can trust. You said to Malachi, I am the Lord and I do not change. And although the culture and the times change, you alone are the consistent and steadfast one. And we come to you today to ask you to meet us and to speak to our hearts, to help us to understand fully all that you've done for us, and at the same time, all that we are required of by you. Bless now the word. May it be lifted up in a way that honors you and in a way that encourages the body corrects any areas in our lives that need to be adjusted. Most of all, speaks to our heart through the Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want us to talk this morning about the prelude to revival. For the last several weeks, I've been mulling over the days leading up to refresh and wanting God to speak to us in a new and, and fresh way and asking Him to give me some insight into what He needs to do and what He needs to say to us. And so today's messages this morning and tonight are really what I believe that God's put into my heart that we need to talk about if we're going to be ready to receive everything God has for us in the conference that begins next week. We, we started this morning with a prelude, if you will. Oh, worship the King. The band played, oh, worship the King. And, and that's the way we began this morning. And we began most mornings that way. I remember when I was growing up, I, I grew up in a church and we had a huge pipe organ in the church. Uh, it would shake the dust off the chandeliers in there and everything else. And about five minutes before the choir came out, the, the organists would come out and they would begin to, to play the prelude. And the purpose of the prelude was to tell everybody it's, it's time to get settled in, it's time to get ready, it's time for us to think about what God might want to say to us today. It's time for us to prepare our hearts and to listen. It's time to focus. And really there's a passage in the Scriptures that remind us about focus, and that is the book of Malachi. It is not an easy book to read. It is certainly not an easy book to preach out of. But it is a life message for God's people about what He expects of us and how we are to live. And what we need to remember is, and we'll talk about this in more detail tonight, that this is the last prophet with the last word in the last book before God closes His mouth for 400 years. The 400 years of silence that follow the book of Malachi are one, preparation for Jesus to come in His birth, but also it is a reminder that when we do not listen to the Word, 
and respond to the Word, that there is a real sense then and now the possibility that God could cut Himself off from communicating anything any further to us until we obey what He has already said. This is a message about a prelude to revival because in any great revival, there has been a prelude, there has been a season of preparation, a time spent in prayer where the remnant has been stirred up, where people's hearts have, have come together, where there's been a realization, I, I'm not happy with my life the way it is. There's got to be something more to life than what I'm experiencing. I, I hear the promises of God. I see what God says. I, I hear other people talk about victory, but I'm not living in it, or we're not seeing it in our church, or we're not seeing it in our family. And it is in those desperate moments that people begin to gather together to prepare their hearts for what God might say to them. Now, there are three words in your notes, and I want to distinguish those three words. First of all is the word renewal. Renewal is a prelude to revival. It is when God's people begin to get stirred up into wanting something more. There's a renewed interest. There's a renewed vitality. There's a renewed energy. There's a renewed faithfulness. Uh, it's, it's, we would call it rededication, I guess, today. But, but it is a renewal of something that we've let slide in our lives, and now we realize that that thing that we've kind of let go by the wayside, we need to refocus on that. Then there is revival. Now, revival is not to be confused with evangelism because evangelism always follows revival. It never precedes it. It is a revived church that reaches out to lost people. It is a revived church that preaches Jesus Christ as the only way. You see, in, in revival, the saved get their lives revived. And their lives are marked by significant changes in priorities and in use of time and in talents and all that we do. It's a reevaluation of our lives. As, are we living up to the standard of Jesus Christ in what we say and in what we do? And then there's awakening. Awakening is that which happens outside of a local church. It's not limited and contained to a local church. It is, in fact, communities, regions, states, or nations that are revived. And there's a drastic change in the culture. And you see that in the history of revival and spiritual awakenings. There have been seasons of spiritual awakening. We would call the Reformation the Reformation, but it was in fact a reawakening that changed the climate and the culture of the world that had fallen into dead religion. It affected art, it affected music, it affected politics, it affected the church, it affected everything that it touched. And that's what revival and awakening do. Awakening is when it gets outside of the four walls and of one specific community, and it becomes a life-giving power to a nation or to a land. I agree with Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. She said, words, 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 I'm so sick of words. Sing me no song, read me no rhyme, waste not my time show me. What the world is looking for today is not a church that just sings songs and makes rhymes. 
They're looking for a church that will show them that Jesus Christ actually has made a difference in their lives. They're waiting for people that live out their faith. They've heard words. They've heard songs. What they've got is a show-me attitude. Show me that what you say you have that is so real is, in fact, real in your life. And the first thing that we have to show them is that we are intent on a return to God. We are intent on a return to God. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept, kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you shall say, how shall we return? Returning and repentance are basically the same word. It, it means a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of direction. God says, I've not changed. You still are like Jacob. We're going to talk about that a lot tonight, about what it means to be like Jacob, which he refers to here in Malachi 3. But, but he says, you've changed. You've gotten off course. You're not on the right path. Return to me. Get back on the right path with me. And you see, part of the problem is the reason we don't change is because we kind of feel okay. Not great, but we feel okay about our lives. You know, gas prices are up, now they're down a little bit. I mean, I told Terry, I never thought I'd see the day when I slam on the brakes to go, look, 236 a gallon, pull in there. You know, I remember when I paid 36 cents a gallon. Bless God. <laughs> you know, we've not been attacked again, although we've, there's a recent plot discovered in London. But, but we kind of go about our business, and, and, and I was thinking this week while I was away, you know, as long as it doesn't affect us personally, sometimes we just kind of go about our business like nothing is different, like everything's just kind of going on. I mean, you know, if, if the planes had flown into Albany, we would have thought differently this week. But see, that's way up there in New York. That's other people. That's not us. And so life just kind of goes on. You know, for people that don't fly, when everybody said, now you can't take, you know, any liquids, toothpaste, lipstick, or mascara, or anything like that on an airplane, well, no big deal. I don't go on an airplane anyway, so it doesn't matter to me. My life just goes on. And yet it goes on without direction. And God says that we need to come back and adjust ourselves because while we're kind of ebbing and flowing with the signs of the times and moving along kind of haphazardly in our lives, God says, I've been focused. I, I'm, I'm on target, and you've gotten off target, and, and you need to come back to me. And he's, this is where we get our bearings. This is where we get our sense of direction. This is our measuring rod. Return to me, and I will return to you. This is not where we say to God, God, you first. God says, you return, and then I'll return. If you'll get things right in your life, I'll make sure things are right with your life. And so God is presenting them a plan, and they said, but how shall we return? Return to me and I will return to you. It's a covenant principle. And a covenant is a two-way street. It's not one-sided. God made promises to Israel, but those promises were conditioned on obedience to God's commands. 
With the promises come responsibility. And any time you see a promise in the Bible, it is a promise, but it is a conditional promise most of the time saying, if you obey what I say, then I promise I will do this. It's not, there's not a dichotomy. They're not separated from each other. So what do we need to return to? First of all, we need to return to a passion for the Word. We need to return to a passion for the Word. Now, we would say that we are a church that believes the Bible to be the inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative Word of God without any mixture of error. I think that's what we would say as a church. Okay, there's four of us. I think that's what we would say is that we are a church that believes in the Word of God. Amen? Unless God asks us to do something we don't want to do. And then we want to edit that part out. We kind of want to do the Bible like we do our programs on our computer. We want to cut and paste and cut and paste where we want to cut and paste. And there has to be a return to the passion of the Word of God that when God says it, that settles it. doesn't matter how you feel about it. It really doesn't matter what I think about what God says. You know, there's things in the Bible I don't understand. But I still believe them because God said them. Now, we will talk about this tonight in detail. But just because you can't understand something doesn't mean it's not true. I don't understand aerodynamics, but I'm grateful to God that this summer while I've been traveling, it has worked. You know, I didn't stand outside the plane saying, until I can understand aerodynamics, I'm not getting on that plane. Somebody else understands aerodynamics, and the pilot knows how to cooperate with it, and so I figure I'll trust them. There are things that God says that sometimes I don't understand. But the problem is with me not understanding. The problem is not in, with God. Because God reveals to us enough that we walk by faith and believe His Word. What God says, we do. That's a returning to the passion for the Word of God. Secondly, a passion for the things of God. A passion for the things of God. The things that matter to God. The things that matter to God. I, you know, and God could care less about the color of the carpet or, or, you know, which side the piano's on, and churches have split over all those things. But I'm talking about the things that matter to God. Body life, fellowship, unity, encouraging one another, praying for one another, serving one another, giving to one another, loving one another. Those things that are clearly revealed in the Word of God is how the body is supposed to function. There needs to be a passion that those things are protected. Number three, a passion for knowing God. Not just a passion for the things of God, but a passion to know God Himself intimately. That we want to get to know God. I'm always amazed when I go to the mountains, the different ways that God reveals himself. Sometimes it's in a sunrise, sometimes it's in a sunset. The other night it was in the most odd coloring of the sky with a full moon over a, a blank ridge with not a house on it. Just God's natural reflected light showing on the ridge and revealing the ridge of a mountain and the valleys and the peaks. And God giving a reflection of Himself and of His light. And to say, Lord, how could I doubt 
that you have things in control. When right on time for thousands of years, it's been full moon when it's supposed to be full moon. That you have this world. You're not a distant deity uninvolved in what's going on in our lives. That I need to get to know the God who is creator, sustainer, and redeemer. And know him intimately. Next, we need a passion for holiness. Because the scripture says that we're to be holy because he is holy. A passion for holiness. How much more can we be like him? Listening to him, obeying him, following him. And then we need a a passion for the lost. It needs to break our hearts that people reject Christ. We cannot choose Christ for anyone. But it needs to break our hearts that God in his great love gave his son and people choose to say, I'm not interested in what the Son of God has to offer me. A passion for lost people. Sometimes when I read the paper and I read the obituaries, I'll read and it'll say they remember this club and this organization and this thing and they remember this church. And I'll just ask myself a question, but Lord, were they saved? I mean, just about everybody's a member of a church. But were they saved? Are they in heaven today or are they in hell today? And could we have made any difference in sharing the gospel with them? I understand man is without excuse, but we are not without responsibility. Because the Great Commission tells us where to go and to make disciples. Now, now here's a couple of thoughts that I want to give you. They're not going to be on the screen, but just some things as the Lord was kind of taking me through this. If I love the work of the Lord more than the Lord of the work, I need to change. Now, that one's a hard one for me. If I love the work of the Lord more than the Lord of the work, I need to change. If... I love preaching more than I do Jesus and talking about him. Something's out of balance in my life. Another thing is if my doing is not the overflow of my being, something's wrong. If what I do doesn't flow out of who I am, then something's wrong. I'm just putting up a facade. I'm just uh, putting up a front. I'm pretending to be something that, that I'm not. If I love my preferences more than the Lord, I've changed and I need to change and return back to God. We all have our preferences. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have preferences. But they can't become idols. They can't become idols. They can't become things that we worship instead of the Lord. Another one is if I'm disobeying a clear teaching of Scripture, I need to change. And if I'm justifying something that I need to judge, I need to change. The psalmist said in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 66, 2, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's who God says he esteems. The one that is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. 
Joel 2.13, rend your heart and not your garments, return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. There has to be a return to God. But not only that, there has to be a renewal of obedience. Verse 8 of chapter 3, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Now verse 8 almost seems like a rhetorical question that presupposes a no answer, but God says, yet you're robbing me. Now, now before everybody gets up tight, let me just ask you a simple question. Do you want God to open up the windows of blessing on your life and on your family? Yes or no? then if you want it, and if I want it, I've got to do what God says. I mean, this, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to figure out what he just said here. This is black ink on white paper, and it's real clear. If you want the blessings of God on your life. Now, I'm not talking about the guys on TV that say, if you'll send me $30 a month, God's going to bless you with $30 million. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the favor, the protection, the listening ear of God in your life. Then you and I have to do what God says opens up the windows of heaven. I mean, it, it's just real clear. And yet, we, this is one of those parts where we say, I believe the Bible, but not that part. <laughs> I, I want to get around that. I, I want to ignore that. But folks, listen to me very carefully. I'm saying this because I love you and because I want this church to experience a great movement of God. I'm saying this because I care. I'm telling you what I would tell my own children. I want God to bless you. But you and I will never, ever see a great, life-changing revival unless we get this right. It's just a non-negotiable with God. You, you can't read the Bible, Old or New Testament, and not realize that giving God the first fruits are what we are supposed to do. In fact, Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, God established a tithe with Abraham. That was before the law, by the way, hundreds of years before the law. In Genesis 28, 22, Jacob practiced the tithe at Bethel. In Leviticus 27 and verse 30, it was the law. And as I began to study this again, I, I realized there's not one reference. Now listen to me, don't lose me here. There's not one reference to tithing in the Bible that is not tied in some way to honoring God and God blessing us. Not one. It's not a just because God says, you obey me in this, and I will do something for you. God has set up a system whereby we are to show how much we trust him. 
And this is a basic principle of life. If I don't do it, it's like when my kids were small and they're three or four or five years old and they would, if they would have looked up at me and said, I don't need you, I can take care of myself. Well, knock yourself out. I'm going to run away from home. I've got all I need. Where are you going? Across the street. Stay at a friend's house. You see, God is saying, I want to bless you. And whether it's ingratitude or insensitivity or ignorance of what God says or just plain old disobedience, the windows of heaven, he says, are shut until we get this straight. Now, for them, the tithe was like the tax and offerings came after that. Now, that's the great news. When you tithe, the great news is you get to begin making offerings. He says, this is what you owe. You're to bring the first fruits. You're to bring the first of everything, the firstborn, the first fruits of your produce of the land. He's talking to an agricultural society, and what he's saying is that, that our tithing is tied to trust and our faith is tied to our finances. Now, I'm not, don't even get on the road to think that I'm saying this because we're behind the budget. That has nothing to do with this. This has everything to do with God blessing your life. Everything. It has everything to do with God answering your prayers. It has everything to do with God meeting your needs. Because what does he say? He says, when you do this, I will rebuke the devourer. That's why no matter what raise you get, it's not enough. That's no matter what you try to do, you never get out of debt. You just end up in this cycle and this downward spiral over and over again because you're trying to deal with the devourer without obeying the one who can rebuke the devourer. You're trying to reason out your life. He says, test me now in this. Not when you think you can afford it, but test me now. I, I remember a friend of mine who was in the ministry, and, and uh, he, he wrote a check that he knew his bank account couldn't cover because he you know, started obeying God in this area. And they never bounced a check because resources started coming in. He said, there's only one way to explain it. God met me at the point of my need and at the point of my faith. That's all I can explain. He, he says, we're to test him now in this, not when we can afford it. Look, you can never afford it unless you understand that you can do better on less with God in it than you can do on more without God in it. You never afford it. He says, test me now. The curse comes from a failure to obey God. And to fail to do this is to miss God's blessings in our lives. And Malachi is referring to a drought. I, I thought it was interesting. I didn't even have this passage in mind when we began to, to think of our theme for refresh for this year, but prepare for rain. He was talking about a drought. Do you realize in the 1930s, after a time of success and prosperity and everything was going great in America, that there was a stock market crash? Some of you aren't old enough to remember that. I'm not, but my parents did. And they lived through that time. And in the breadbasket of America, there were nine years with no rain. 
And in April of 1935, they had what they called Black Sunday, which is when millions of acres of topsoil, because of nine years of no rain, blew across America and just depleted the farmlands of the breadbasket of America. Black Sunday, the drought, the depression, all times of dryness and people starving and the grapes of wrath and all of those stories that came out of that. My parents lived through that time and Malachi said, you're going to be in a drought until you do something about this. Say, well, we got irrigation systems now, but their source is from God. The source of everything you need to exist is from God. The water that you drink, the air that you breathe, the ground that you stand on, that source is from God. And he says, when you learn to trust God, then I'm going to open up the doors. Now, let me just give you an example here. Stephen, I want to give you $10, okay? You were sure willing to take that very No, I want to give it to you. I want to give you $10, okay? Just sit down. Just take Jill to Chick-fil-A and buy her a large sweet tea and a chicken sandwich. Okay? All right. By the way, I need a dollar of that back. Thanks. Now, should he have had any problem giving me a dollar back out of ten? Why? Because I'm the source. He's got ten dollars he never had before. Now he's got nine dollars he had met by Stephen. I know I gave you ten dollars, but Garrett and Tracy are sitting over there, and they'd really like to go eat too, and they could maybe split an order of fries or something. Could, could I have five dollars of that back? Garrett, that's yours. You got 50 cents. Come on, Garrett, time's wasting. Oh, you're going to give a double tithe. Wow. All right, let me give you a principle here. Who's the source of the $10? Okay. And I gave it not because Stephen earned it, but because what? I just wanted to give it, right? So I came back and I said, I need a dollar. Why? Because that's 10%. And then I came back and said, you know, I, I, need, I need to bless Garrett over here too because I want to bless Garrett. I just want to bless Stephen. I want to bless Garrett. And so I came back and said, look, I need $5. Now, should he be upset about me asking him for five more dollars? He's already $4 ahead, isn't he? He's got $4 more. Now, just think about that. You came to church and got money. <laughs> He's $4 ahead. Now, Garrett is four dollars ahead because he gave me a double tithe he's more spiritual than Stephen (laughs) let me give you a principle that you need to understand about tithing God wants you need to write this down God wants his money in circulation God doesn't want 
the tithes and offerings so that we build up a nest egg for the church or for ourselves in this case. God wants his money in circulation. And so because Stephen was willing to give and to give over and above because he recognized the source, not only did Stephen get blessed, but now Garrett's been blessed. And guess what? Malachi says there's a book of remembrance and God wrote it down that Stephen was willing to give because he knew that he wasn't the source of that $10. And so he came over and blessed Garrett. And the Bible says, Moses says it, Deuteronomy says it, and Revelation says it. There's a book of remembrance of our words and that God is going to put it to his account for the good that he was willing to bless somebody else. Now, did Stephen bless them or did I bless them? Well, both. Stephen did it because he was willing to obey God, but I did it because I was the ultimate source of the $5 that Stephen gave me to begin with, and so I could bless them because Stephen was obeying me. You get the point? When I obey God, it not only blesses my life, but it blesses other people's lives. It's I'm used by God in the lives of other people, sometimes people that I don't even know I'm being used to be a blessing to them. But because I obey God, God puts that principle in the, in the process and he works in my life. So there's a remembrance, verse 13, and I'm going to go very quickly. We'll probably pick up most of this tonight. Malachi 3.13, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you've said, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in the morning before God, the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of the wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Let me give you three quick things because of time. First of all, remember you're accountable. If I want revival in my life, if I want a fresh touch from God in my life, I need to remember that I'm accountable for what I do and how I respond to the Word of God. I'm accountable. These people were saying, we're serving God, but we're not getting anything out of it. God said, I'm keeping a record. Secondly, remember God rewards those who seek Him. God rewards those who seek him. Then those who feared the Lord, verse 16, spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. God is speaking to a remnant. He's speaking to his people that are listening. And I want you to notice two things in verse 16 that God takes note of. First of all, God takes note of those who fear him. That's not to be afraid that God's going to mess us up if we don't listen to him, but those who reverence his name, not only those who fear him, but, but to those who honor his name, who live a life in such a way that his name is honored in by how they live. So we remember that God rewards those who seek him, and finally we remember that nothing goes unnoticed by God. Verse 17, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. 
you'll be able to distinguish righteous and wicked. If you notice that with God, it's lost or saved, it's righteous or wicked, it's holy or unholy. God doesn't go in shades of gray. God is very specific in the lines that he draws about what he expects. So, so he doesn't stutter and he doesn't stammer and he doesn't almost say something. When God says something, he says, when, when you fear me and when you love me and when you obey me, then you will see that it will be distinguished between the righteous and the wicked. Those who listen to me and those who do not. There's one last quote I want you to see. A.W. Tozer said this, it is useless for large companies of believers to spend long hours begging God to send revival unless we intend to reform we may as well not pray unless we intend to reform we may as well not pray would you stand with me? Your heads are bowed and eyes closed. I believe that what we've talked about this morning is crucial to us experiencing revival, to us seeing God answer prayer. Not debating with God, arguing with God, justifying ourselves in any way, but simply saying, Lord, I choose to believe your word. And I choose to get my life right in these areas. And for some of you, that's going to mean in a little while going to Bible study, getting your checkbook out and writing a check and catching up on your tithe. See, here's what happens to us. We're out during the summer, we leave and we take our tithe with us and we spend it at the beach, we spend it in the mountains, we spend it on vacation, we spend it on eating out. And then when we come back, we start giving again or we start tithing again. That's not the tithe. The tithe is the first of everything, not the last and the leftovers. When we give to God, we give God our best. Why? He set the example for us and that He gave us His best. God didn't send a lame, broken, beat up son. He sent a perfect son, a sinless son, so that we could have salvation full and complete in Christ Jesus. And whatever it is in your life that, that is not where it's supposed to be in your relationship with the Lord, I want to beg you on behalf of the Lord, get that right so God can speak to you this next week. Don't run from this. Don't be afraid of this. Don't be scared of what God might ask of you. God never asks anything of you to try to hurt you. He's trying to help you. Don't be afraid of what God wants you to do. Obey what God wants you to do and watch how He blesses and He rebukes the devourer and it says, and He opens up the windows of heaven. And that's what God wants to do in your life today. You could draw a circle around your life today and, and write somewhere on your hand, God wants to open the windows of heaven on my life. What is it in my life that is keeping him from opening the windows of heaven on my life? And whatever that is, you need to get it right. Because the windows of heaven are too great to have them closed off. And you've got to be tired by this point in your life of the devourer just taking everything you got. 
And so as these altars are open and the staff is here at the front, I encourage you to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to me, not to a church, but to Jesus Christ and to be obedient to Him in what He has prompted your heart that you need to do today. As they sing, I'm going to ask you to step out and come right now. Oh, to Jesus.